I recollected very well, replied the other. Do you not remember preaching at such and such a village from such and such a text, and after the service a young man walked home with you? Oh yes, I remember that very well. Well, I am the young man who walked home with you that night. I remember your sermon. I shall never forget it. Thank God for that, said the preacher. No, answered the dying man. You will not thank God when you have heard all I have to say. I walked with you to the village, but you did not say much to me on the way there, for you were thinking over your sermon. You deeply impressed me while you were preaching, and I was led to think about giving my heart to Christ. I wanted to speak to you about my soul on the way home. But the moment you got out, you cracked a joke, and all the way back you made such fun upon serious subjects that I could not say anything about what I felt, and it thoroughly disgusted me with religion and all who professed it, and now I am going to be damned, and my blood will lie at your door as sure as you are alive. And so he passed out of the world. One would not like anything of that sort to happen to himself. Therefore take heed, brethren, that you give no occasion for it. There must be a prevailing seriousness about our whole lives, otherwise we cannot hope to lead other men to Christ. Finally, if we are to be much used of God as soul winners, there must be in our hearts a great deal of tenderness. I like a man to have a due amount of holy boldness, but I do not care to see him brazen-faced and impudent. A young man goes into a pulpit, apologizes for attempting to preach, and hopes the people will bear with him. He does not know that he has anything particular to say. If the Lord had sent him, he might have some message for them, but he feels himself so young and inexperienced that he cannot speak very positively about anything. Such talk as that will never save a mouse, much less an immortal soul. If the Lord has sent you to preach the gospel, why should you make any apologies? Ambassadors do not apologize when they go to a foreign court. They know that their monarchs have sent them, and they deliver their message with all the authority of the king and country at their back. Nor is it worthwhile for you to call attention to your youth. You are only a trumpet of ram's horn, and it does not matter whether you will pull off the ram's head yesterday or five and twenty years ago. If God blows through you, there will be noise enough and something more than noise. If he does not, nothing will come of the blowing. When you preach, speak out straight, but be very tender about it. And if there is an unpleasant thing to be said, take care that you put it in the kindest possible form. Some of your brethren had a message to deliver to a certain Christian brother, and when they went to him, they put it so awkwardly that he was grievously offended. When I spoke to him about the same matter, he said, I would not have minded your speaking to me. You have a way of putting an unpleasant truth so that a man cannot be offended with you, however much he may dislike the message you are bringing to him. Well, but, I said, I put the matter just as strongly as the other brethren did. Yes, you did, he replied, but they said it in such a nasty kind of way that I would not stand it. Why, sir, I had rather be blown up by you than praised by those other people. There is a way of doing such things so that the person reproved feels positively grateful to you. 
one may kick a man downstairs in such a fashion that he will rather like it, while another may open a door in such an offensive way that you do not want to go through till he is out of the way. Now if I have to tell anyone certain unpalatable truths which it is necessary that he should know if his soul is to be saved, it is a stern necessity for me to be faithful to him. Yet I will try so to deliver my message that he shall not be offended at it. Then if he does take offense, he must. The probability is that he will not, but that what I say will take effect upon his conscience. I know some brethren who preach as if they were prize fighters. When they are in the pulpit, they remind me of the Irishmen at Donnybrook Fair. All the way through the sermon they appear to be calling upon someone to come up and fight them, and they are never happy except when they are pitching into somebody or other. There is a man who often preaches on Chapman Common, and he does it so pugnaciously that the infidels whom he assails cannot endure it, and there are frequent fights and rows. There is a way of preaching so as to set everybody on the ears. If some men are allowed to preach in heaven, I am afraid they would set the angels fighting. I know a number of ministers of this stamp. There is one, to my certain knowledge, has been at over a dozen places during his not very long ministerial life. You can tell where he has been by the ruin he leaves behind him. He always finds the churches in a sad state, and he straightway begins to purify them, that is, to destroy them. As a general rule, the first thing out goes the principal deacon. The next away go all the leading families, and before long the man has purified the place so effectually that the few people who are left cannot keep him. Off he goes to another place and repeats the process of destruction. He is a kind of a spiritual ship scuttler, and he is never happy except when he is boring a hole through the planks of some good vessel. He says he believes the ship is unsound, so he bores and bores until just as she is going down he slips off and gets aboard another vessel, which very soon sinks in the same manner. He feels that he is called to the work of separating the precious from the vile, and a preciously vile mess he makes of it. I have no reason to believe it is the condition of the liver with this brother. It is more likely that there is something wrong with his heart. Certainly there is an evil disease upon him that always makes me get into a bad temper with him. It is dangerous to entertain him above three days for he would quarrel in that time with the most peaceably disposed man in the world. I never mean to recommend him to a pastorate again. Let him find a place for himself if he can, for I believe that wherever he goes, the place will be like the spot where the foot of the Tartar's horse is put down. The grass will never again grow there. If any of you brethren have even a little bit of this nasty, bitter spirit about you, go to see that you may get rid of it. I hope it may happen to you according to the legend which is told concerning Mohammed. In every human being, so the story runs, there are two black drops of sin. The great prophet himself was not free from the common lot of evil, but an angel was sent to take his heart 
and squeeze out of it the two black drops of sin. Get those black drops out somehow while you are in college. If you have any malice or ill will or bad temper in you, pray the Lord to take it out of you while you are here. Do not go into the churches to fight as others have done. Still, says the brother, I am not going to let the people tread on me. I shall take the bull by the horns. You will be a great fool if you do. I never felt that I was called to do anything of the kind. Why not let the bull alone to go where he likes? A bull is a very likely creature to project you into space if you get meddling with his horns. Still, says another, we must set things right. Yes, but the best way to set things right is not to make them more wrong than they are. Nobody thinks of putting a mad bull into a china shop in order to get the china cleaned, and no one can, by a display of evil temper, set right anything that is wrong in our churches. Take care always to speak the truth in love, and especially when you are rebuking sin. I believe, brethren, that soul winning is to be done by men of the character I have been describing, and most of all will this be the case when they are surrounded by people of a similar character. You want to get the very atmosphere in which you live and labor permeated with the Spirit before you can rightly expect the fullest and richest blessings. Therefore, may you and all your people be all that I have pictured for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. Chapter 4, page 29 Sermons Likely to Win Souls This afternoon, brethren, I am going to speak to you about the kinds of sermons that are most likely to convert people, the sort of discourses we should deliver if we really want our hearers to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and to be saved. Of course, we are all perfectly agreed that the Holy Spirit alone can convert a soul. None can enter the kingdom of God except they are born again from above. All the work is done by the Holy Spirit, and we must not take to ourselves any part of the credit for the result of the work, for it is the Spirit who new creates and works in man according to the eternal purpose of God. Still, we may be instruments in his hands, for he chooses to use instruments, and he chooses them for wise reasons. There must be an adaptation of means to the end, as there was with David when he went forth with the sling and stone to slay Goliath of Gath. Goliath was a tall fellow, but a stone from a sling can mount, and, besides, the giant was armed and protected, and scarcely vulnerable except in his forehead, so that was the very place to hit him. Though David took a sling, it was not so much because he had no other weapon as that he had practiced slinging, as most boys do in some form or other. And then he chose a smooth stone because he knew it would fit the sling. He took the right kind of stone to enter Goliath's head, so when he slung it at the giant, it struck him in the forehead, penetrated his brain, and he sank down to the ground. You will find that the principle of adaptation runs through the whole work of the Holy Spirit. If a man is wanted to be the apostle of the Gentiles, the Holy Spirit selects the large-minded, well-trained, highly educated Paul, 
for he was more fit for such work than was the somewhat narrow though strong-minded Peter who was better suited for preaching to the Jews and who was of far more use to the circumcision than he ever could have been among the uncircumcision. Paul in his place is the right man and Peter in his place is the right man. You may see in this principle a lesson for yourselves and seek to adapt your means to your end. God the Holy Spirit can convert a soul by any text of scripture apart from your paraphrase, your comment, your exposition. But there are certain scripture passages, as you know, that are the best to bring before the minds of sinners. And if this is true about your text, much more is it so in your discourses to your hearers. As to which sermons are most likely to be blessed to the conversion of those to whom they are preached, I should say, first, there are those sermons which are distinctly aimed at the conversion of the hearers. I heard a prayer some time ago from a minister who asked the Lord to save souls by the sermon he was about to deliver. I do not hesitate to say that God himself could not bless the sermon to that end unless he made the people misunderstand all that the preacher said to them, because the whole discourse was rather calculated to harden the sinner in his sin than to lead him to renounce it and to seek the Savior. There is nothing in it that could be blessed to any hearer unless he turned it inside out or bottom upwards. The sermon did me good on the principle that was applied by a good old lady to the minister she was obliged to hear. When asked, Why do you go to such a place? She replied, Well, there is no other place of worship to which I can go. But it must be better to stay at home than to hear such stuff, said her friend. Perhaps so, she answered, but I like to go out to worship even if I get nothing by going. You see a hen sometimes scratching all over the heap of rubbish to try to find some corn. She does not get any, but it shows that she is looking for it and using the means to get it. And then, too, the exercise warms her. So the old lady said that scratching over the poor sermons she heard was a blessing to her because it exercised her spiritual faculties and warmed her spirit. There are sermons of such a kind that unless God takes to ripening wheat by means of snow and ice and begins to illuminate the world by means of fogs and clouds, he cannot save souls under them. While the preacher himself evidently does not think that anybody will be converted by them. If a hundred persons, or if half a dozen were converted by them, nobody would be so astonished as the preacher himself. In fact, I know a man who was converted, or at least convicted under the preaching of a minister of that kind. In a certain parish church, as a result of the clergyman's preaching, there was a man who was under deep conviction of sin. He went down to see his minister, but the poor man did not know what to make of him, and said to him, I am very sorry if there was anything in my sermon to make you uncomfortable. I did not mean it to be so. Well, sir, answered the troubled man, you said that we must be born again. Oh, replied the clergyman, that was all done in baptism. But, sir, said the man, who was not to be put off, you did not say so in your sermon. You spoke of the necessity of regeneration. 
Well, I am very sorry I said anything to make you so uncomfortable, for really I think all is right with you. You are a good sort of a fellow. You were never a poacher or anything else that is bad. That may be, sir, but I have a sense of sin, and you said we must be new creatures. Well, well, my good man, at last said the perplexed parson, I do not understand such things. I never was born again. He sent him to the Baptist minister, and the man is now himself a Baptist minister, partly as a result of what he learned from the preacher who did not himself understand the truth he had declared to others. Of course, God can convert a soul by such a sermon as that, and by such a minister as that, but it is not likely. It is more probable that, in his infinite sovereignty, he will work in a place where a warm-hearted man is preaching to men the truth that he has himself received, all the while earnestly desiring their salvation, and ready to guide them further in the ways of the Lord, as soon as ever they are saved. God does not usually lay his newborn children down amongst people where the new life will not be understood, or where it will be left without any proper nurture or care. So, brethren, if you want your hearers to be converted, you must just see that your preaching aims directly at conversion, and that it is such as God will be likely to bless to that end. When that is the case, then look for souls to be saved, and look for a great number of them too. Do not be satisfied when a single soul is converted. Remember that the rule of the kingdom is, according to your faith, be it unto you. I said last night in my sermon in the tabernacle that I was glad it was not written, according to thine unbelief, so be it unto thee. If there be in us a great faith, God will give us blessing according to our faith. Oh, that we were altogether rid of unbelief, that we believed great things of God, and with heart and soul so preached that men were likely to be converted by such discourses proclaiming truths likely to convert them and declaring them in a manner that would be likely to be blessed to the conversion of our hearers. Of course, all the while we must be trusting to the Holy Spirit to make the work effectual, for we are but the instruments in His hands. But coming a little closer to our subject, if the people are to be saved, it must be by sermons that interest them. You have first to get them to come under the sound of the gospel, for there is, at all events in London, a great aversion to a place of worship, and I am not much surprised that it is so concerning many churches and chapels. I think in many instances the common people do not attend such services because they do not understand the theological lingo that is used in the pulpit. It is neither English nor Greek, but double Dutch, and when a working man goes once and listens to these fine words, he says to his wife, I do not go there again. Sal, there is nothing there for me, nor yet for you. There may be a good deal for a gentleman that's been to college, but there is nothing for the likes of us. No, brethren, we must preach in what Whitfield used to call market language if we would have all classes of the community listening to our message. Then when they do come in, we must preach interestingly. The people will not be converted while they are asleep. And if they go to sleep, they had better have been at home in bed, where they would sleep much more comfortably. 
We must have the minds of our hearers awake and active if we are to do them real good. You will not shoot your birds unless you get them to fly. You must get them started up from the long grass in which they are hiding. I would sooner use a little of what some very proper preachers regard as a dreadful thing, that wicked thing called humor. I would sooner wake the congregation up that way than have it said that I droned away at them until we all went to sleep together. Sometimes it may be quite right to have it said of us as it was said of Roland Hill. What does that man mean? He actually made the people laugh while he was preaching. Yes, was the wise answer, but did you not see that he made them cry directly after? That was good work, and it was well done. I sometimes tickle my oyster until it opens his shell, and then I slip the knife in. He would not have opened for my knife, but he did for something else, and that is the way to do with people. They must be made to open their eyes and ears and souls somehow, and when you get them open, you must feel, now is my opportunity, in with the knife. There is one vulnerable spot in the hides of those rhinoceros sinners that come to hear you. But take care that if you do get a shot through that weak spot, it shall be a thorough gospel bullet, for nothing else will accomplish the work that needs to be done. Moreover, the people must be interested to make them remember what is said. They will not recollect what they hear unless the subject interests them. They forget our fine conclusions. They cannot recall our very pretty pieces of poetry. I do not know that they would do them any good if they did remember them. But we must tell our hearers something they will not be likely to forget. I believe in what Father Taylor calls the surprise power of a sermon. That is something that is not expected by those who are listening to it. Just when they reckon that they are sure to say something very precise and straight, Say something awkward and crooked, because they will remember that, and you will have tied a gospel knot where it is likely to remain. I remember reading of a tailor who had made his fortune, and he promised to tell his brother tailors how he had done it. They gathered around his bed when he was dying, and he said, as they all listened very attentively, Now I am to tell you how you tailors are to make your fortunes. This is the way. Always put a knot in your thread. I give that same advice to you preachers. Always put a knot in your thread. If there is a knot in the thread, it does not come out of the material. Some preachers put in the needle all right, but there is no knot in their thread, so it passes through and they have really done nothing after all. Put a good many knots in your discourses, brethren, so that they may be all the greater probability that they will remain in your people's memories. You do not want your preaching to be like the sewing done by some machines, for if one stitch breaks, the whole will come undone. There ought to be plenty of burrs in a sermon. Mr. Ferguson will tell you what burrs are. I'll warrant you that he has often found them clinging to his coat in his bonny Scotland. Put those burrs all over the people. Say something that will strike them, something that will stick to them for many a day, and that will be likely to bless them. 
I believe that a sermon under God's smile is likely to be the means of conversion if it has this peculiarity about it, that it is interesting to the hearers as well as directly aimed at their salvation. The third thing in a sermon that is likely to win souls to Christ is, it must be instructive. If people are to be saved by a discourse, it must contain at least some measure of knowledge. There must be light as well as fire. Some preachers are all light and no fire, and others are all fire and no light. What we want is both fire and light. I do not judge those brethren who are all fire and fury, but I wish they had a little more knowledge of what they talk about, and I think it would be well if they did not begin quite so soon to preach what they hardly understand themselves. It is a fine thing to stand up in the street and cry, Believe! 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 Yes, my dear soul, but what have we to believe? What is all this noise about? Preachers of this sort are like a little boy who had been crying and something happened that stopped him in the middle of his cry. And presently he said, Ma, please, what was I crying about? Emotion, doubtless, is a very proper thing in the pulpit. In the feeling, the pathos, the power of heart are good and grand things in the right place. But do also use your brains a little. Do tell us something when you stand up to preach the everlasting gospel. The sermons that are most likely to convert people seem to me to be those that are full of truth. Truth about the fall, truth about the law, truth about human nature and its alienation from God, truth about Jesus Christ, truth about the Holy Spirit, truth about the everlasting Father, truth about the new birth, truth about obedience to God, and how we learn it, in all such great varieties. Tell your hearers something, dear brethren, whenever you preach, tell them something, tell them something. Of course, some good may come, even if your hearers do not understand you. I suppose it might be so, for there was a very esteemed lady speaking to the friends gathered at the Devonshire House meeting. She was a most gracious woman and was addressing the English friends in Dutch, and she asked one of the brethren to translate for her. But the hearers said there was so much power and spirit about her speaking, though it was in Dutch, that they did not want it translated, for they were getting as much good out of it as was possible. Now these hearers were friends, and they were men of different mold from me, for I do not mind how good a woman the esteemed lady was. I should have liked to know what she was talking about, and I am sure I should not have been in the least degree profited unless it had been translated. And I like ministers always to know what they are talking about and to be sure that there is something in it worth saying. Do try, therefore, dear brethren, to give your hearers something beside a string of pathetic anecdotes that will set them crying. Tell the people something. You are to teach them, to preach the gospel to your hearers, to make them understand as far as you can things which should make for their peace. We cannot expect people to be saved by our sermons unless we really try to instruct them by what we say to them. Fourthly, the people must be impressed by our sermons if they are to be converted. They must not only be interested and instructed, but they must be impressed. 
and I believe, dear friends, there is a great deal more in impressive sermons than some people think. In order that you may impress the word upon those to whom you preach, remember that it must be impressed upon yourself first. You must feel it yourself, and speak as a man who feels it, not as if you feel it, but because you feel it, otherwise you will not make it felt by others. I wonder what it must be to go up into the pulpit and read somebody else's sermon to the congregation. We read in the Bible of one thing that was borrowed and the head of that came off. And I am afraid that the same thing often happens with borrowed sermons. The heads come off. Men who read borrowed sermons positively do not know anything about our troubles of mind in preparing for the pulpit or our joy in preaching with the aid of only brief notes. A dear friend of mine who reads his own sermons was talking to me about preaching and I was telling him how my very soul is moved and my very heart is stirred within me when I think of what I shall say to my people and afterward when I am delivering my message. But he said that he never felt anything of the kind when he was preaching. He reminded me of the little girl who was crying because her teeth ached and her grandmother said to her, Lily, I wonder you are not ashamed to cry about such a small matter. Well, grandmother, answered the little maid, it is all very well for you to say that, for when your teeth ache, you can take them out, but mine are fixed. Some brethren, when the sermon they have selected will not run smoothly, can go into their box and take out another. But when I have a sermon full of joy, and I myself feel heavy and sad, I am utterly miserable. When I want to beg and persuade men to believe, and my spirit is dull and cold, I feel wretched to the last degree. My teeth ache, and I cannot take them out, for they are my own, as my sermons are my own, and therefore I may expect to find a good deal of trouble, both in the getting of them and in the using of them. I remember the answer I received when I once said to my venerable grandfather, I never have to preach, but I have to feel terribly sick, literally sick. I mean, so that I might as well be crossing the channel. And I asked the dear old man whether he thought I should ever get over the feeling. His answer was, Your power will be gone if you do. So, my brethren, when it is not so much that you have got a hold of your subject, but that it has got a hold of you, and you feel its grip with a terrible reality yourself, that is the kind of sermon that is most likely to make others feel. If you are not impressed with yourself, you cannot expect to impress others with it. So mind that your sermons always have something in them which shall really impress both yourself and the hearers whom you are addressing. I think also that there should be an impressive delivery in our discourses. The delivery of some preachers is very bad. If yours is so, try to improve it in all possible ways. One young man wanted to learn singing, but he was told by the teacher, you have only one tone in your voice, and that is outside the scale. So there are some ministers' voices that have only one tone, and there is no music in that one. Do try as far as you can to make the very way in which you speak to minister to the great end you have in view. 
Preach, for instance, as you would plead if you were standing before a judge and begging for the life of a friend, or as if you were appealing to the queen herself on behalf of someone very dear to you. Use such a tone in pleading with sinners as you would use if a gibbet were erected in this room and you were to be hanged on it unless you could persuade the person in authority to release you. That is the sort of earnestness you need in pleading with men as ambassadors for God. Try and make every sermon such that the most flippant shall see without any doubt that if it be an amusement for them to hear you, it is no amusement for you to speak to them, but that you are pleading with them in downright solemn earnest about eternal matters. I have often felt just like this when I have been preaching. I have known what it is to use up all my ammunition, and then I have, as it were, ran myself into the great gospel gun, and I have fired myself at my hearers, all my experience of God's goodness, all my consciousness of sin, and all my sense of the power of the gospel. And there are some people upon whom that kind of preaching tells where nothing else would have done, for they see that when you communicate to them not only the gospel, but yourself also. The kind of sermon which is likely to break the hearer's heart is that which has first broken the preacher's heart, and the sermon which is likely to reach the heart of the hearer is one which has come straight from the heart of the preacher. Therefore, dear brethren, always seek to preach so that the people shall be impressed as well as interested and instructed. Fifthly, I think we should try to take out of our sermons everything that is likely to divert the hearer's mind from the object we have in view. The best kind of preaching in the world, like the best style of dressing, is that which nobody notices. Somebody went to spend the evening with Hannah Moore, and when he came home his wife asked him, How was Miss Moore dressed? She must have been dressed very splendidly. The gentleman answered, Really, she was. Why, dear me, how was she dressed? I did not notice at all how she was dressed. Anyway, there is nothing particularly noticeable in her dress. She was herself the object of interest. That is the way that the true lady is dressed, so that we notice her, not her garments. She is so well dressed that we do not notice how she is dressed, and that is the best way of dressing a sermon. Let it never be said of you, as it is sometimes said of certain popular preachers, he did the thing so majestically, he spoke with such lofty diction, etc., etc., etc. Never introduce anything into your discourses that would be likely to distract the attention of the hearers from the great object you have in view. If you take the sinner's mind off the main subject, speaking after the manner of men, there is so much less likelihood of his receiving the impression you desire to convey, and consequently the smaller probability of his being converted. I remember once reading what Mr. Finley said in his book on revivals. He said that there was a person on the point of being converted, and just then an old woman with patterns on came shuffling up the aisle, making a great noise, and that soul was lost. I know what the evangelist meant though I do not like the form in which the matter was put by him. The noise of the old lady's patterns probably did take off the person's mind from the thing he should have been thinking upon, 
and it is quite possible that he could not be brought back to exactly the same position again. We are to look to all these little things as if everything depended upon us, at the same time remembering that it is the Holy Spirit alone who can make the work effectual. Your sermon should not take off the people's attention through its being only very distantly related to the text. There are many hearers still left who believe that there should be some sort of connection between the sermon and the text. And if they begin asking themselves, however did the minister get right over there? What has his talk to do with the text? You will have lost their attention, and that wandering habit of yours may be a very destructive one to them. Therefore, keep to your text, brethren. If you do not, you will be like the very boy who went out fishing, and his uncle said to him, Have you caught many fish, Samuel? The boy answered, I have been fishing for three hours, uncle, and I have not caught any fish, but I have lost a lot of worms. I hope you will never have to say, I did not win any souls for the Savior, but I spoiled a lot of precious texts. I confused and confounded many passages of scriptures, but I did no good with them. I was not supremely anxious to learn the mind of the Spirit as revealed in the text so as to get its meaning into my own mind, although it took a deal of squeezing and packing to get my mind into the text. That is not a good thing to do. Stick to your text, brethren, as the cobbler is bidden to stick to his last, and seek to get out of the scriptures what the Holy Spirit has put into them. Never let your hearers have to ask the question, What has the sermon to do with the text? If you do, the people will not be profited, and it may be that they will not be saved. I would say to you, brethren, you of these two colleges, get all the education that you can, drink in everything that your tutors can possibly impart to you. It will take you all your time to get out of them all that is in them, but you should endeavor to learn all that you can, because, believe me, a want of education may hinder the work of soul winning. That horrible omission of the letter H from places where it ought to be, that aspiration of the H to you exasperate it altogether. You cannot tell what mischiefs such mistakes may cause. There was a young friend who might have been converted, for she did seem greatly impressed by your discourse. But she was so disgusted by the dreadful way in which you put in H's where they ought not to be, or left them out where they ought to be in, that she could not listen to you with any pleasure, and her attention was distracted from the truth by your errors in pronunciation. The letter H has done vast mischief. It is the letter that killeth, in the case of a great many, and all sorts of grammatical blunders may do more harm than you can imagine. You may think, perhaps, that I am speaking of trifling matters that are hardly worthy of consideration. But I am not, for these things may cause most serious results. And, as it is easy to learn to speak and write correct English, do try and know all you can of it. Perhaps someone says, Well, I know such and such a successful brother, and he was not an educated man. That is true. But mark you this, the time is altering. One young woman said to another, I do not see why we girls need to learn so many lessons. 
the young woman before us did not know much, and yet they got married. Yes, said her companion, but then, you know, there was no boarding schools in them days. But now the young men will be educated, and it will be a poor lookout for us as ain't. A young man might say, such and such a minister was ungrammatical, and yet he did well. But the people of his day were ungrammatical too, so it did not matter so much. But now, when they have all been to the board schools, if they come and listen to you, it will be a pity if their mind is taken off the solemn things which you wish them to think upon because they cannot help noticing your deficiencies in education. Even if you are not an educated man, God may bless you. But wisdom tells us that we should not let our want of education hinder the gospel from blessing men. But possibly you say they must be very hypocritical to find fault like that. But then, do not hypocritical people need saving just as much as other people? I would not have a hypocritical person who could not truthfully say that my preaching so jarred upon his ear and disturbed his mind that he could not possibly receive the doctrine which I was trying to set before him. Did you ever hear how it was that Charles Dickens would not become a spiritualist? At a seance, he asked to see the spirit of Lindley Murray. There came in what professed to be the spirit of Lindley Murray, and Dickens asked, Are you Lindley Murray? The reply came, I are. There was no hope of Dickens' conversion to spiritualism after that ungrammatical answer. You may well laugh at the story, but mind that you recollect the moral of it. You can easily see by forgetting when to use the nominative or accusative case of a noun or pronoun, or by using the wrong tense of a verb, you might take off the mind of your hearer from what you are trying to bring before him, and so prevent the truth from reaching his heart and conscience. Therefore, divest your sermons as much as ever you can of everything that is at all likely to take away the mind of your hearers from the one object before you. The whole attention and thought of the people must be concentrated on the truth we are setting before them if we are so to preach as to save those who come within sound of our voice. Sixthly, I believe that those sermons which are fullest of Christ are the most likely to be blessed to the conversion of the hearers. Let your sermons be full of Christ from beginning to end, crammed full of the gospel. As for myself, brethren, I cannot preach anything else but Christ and his cross, for I know nothing else. And long ago, like the Apostle Paul, I determined not to know anything else save Jesus Christ and him crucified. People have often asked me, What is the secret of your success? I always answer that I have no other secret but this, that I have preached the gospel, not about the gospel, but the gospel, the full, free, glorious gospel of the living Christ, who is the incarnation of the good news. Preach Jesus Christ, brethren, always and everywhere. And every time you preach, be sure to have much of Jesus Christ in the sermon. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. 
Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.